I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Courtney. How's it going? Uh, it's, it's going okay. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to dive into today's episode because we are now covering a whole new play. Yes. Um, before we dive too deep, or before we start even like jumping off into the water, I do want to start off with a content warning for listeners. Listeners, today's episode will cover topics that may not be suitable for all audiences, so please listen with care. And maybe put headphones in, especially if you are around others um, under the age of 18. I'm giving them time to put in their headphones. So uh, <laughs> so here, we'll give, we'll give you time. Three, Three two, two one. one. What are we going to talk about that requires a content warning? We are going to be talking about the sex inside of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And we're going to cover topics. Specifically, we're going to talk about bestiality today and zoophilia as well as uh, we'll touch on some sadomasochism, and, and we're going to talk about sex in general. Sex, yeah. Homoeroticism, Homoeroticism as well, I believe. Heteroeroticism. Mm-hmm. At least the working title of this episode is Shakespeare's Horny Play. Hmm. So we're going to be talking about sex yeah. today. So if that is not for you, you know. There are other episodes for you. There are other episodes for you. So yeah, headphones in everybody. Ready and... Okay. So first off, I do want to talk about typically when this play has been talked about critically in the past, it's been through a very like conservative lens of the reinforcement of certain heteronormative cultural values because this play 
starts and ends with a court marriage. And at the end of this play, and all of Shakespeare's comedies, whatever happened during the course of the play all gets turned around and tied up into heterosexual marriages. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the history of where that comes from, because, yeah, that's kind of the bookend of our play here is these marriages. So A Midsummer Night's Dream was most likely written for the wedding of a noble house, possibly for the weddings of the Earl of Derby or the Earl of Essex. And according to Paul A. Olson's article, A Midsummer Night's Dream and the Meaning of Court Marriage, this ceremony would have taken place around 1595, and the audience would have been filled with, quote, intellectuals and pseudo-intellectuals of the court, men who knew the recently published enigmatic works, The Fairy Queen, The Countess of Pembroke's Yoichurch, Sydney's Arcadia, unquote, as well as the literary lineage of Lily's court comedies 10 years prior, and things like Greek and Roman mythology, Chaucer, etc. I read a little bit about some of those pieces of literature as well. Mm-hmm. So people were talking about them. Yeah. And then there were also these earlier notions of marriage that Shakespeare would have drawn on for this audience. So in the 16th century, there were a lot of sermons, scriptural commentaries, things called marriage manuals that were like, here's how to have a good marriage, and encyclopedias of general knowledge. And according to these, um, which again are like written by the men of the time, um, right? love found in a well-ordered marriage was divine and harmonious. Marriage has a positive social value. And... It's often talked about as the subordination of female passions to the male reason. Yeah. Yeah, I roll. I roll. But also, according to Olson, in these documents, quote, parents were advised to not force unpleasant matches upon their offspring, but to have respect to God's ordinance and to the right ordinate consent of the parties. Children, on the other hand, were counseled that marriage must be undertaken only with the permission of their parents, unquote. So that's where we get the very beginning of Aegeus coming in and being mad that Hermia is not choosing to Demetrius. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, Aegeus is also not listening to Hermia mm-hmm. and who she wants to marry. Yes, he does not have the ordinate consent mm-hmm. of Hermia. So in a way, they are both wrong. Though Theseus in the scene only affirms the rule that the child must obey the parent. That's right. Basically, he's enforcing that Hermia can't marry Lysander because... Lysander doesn't have the approval of Aegeus. So that's how she gets her loophole. Shakespeare also drew on a lengthy literary tradition that painted Theseus as the epitome of male reason and an ideal ruler over his subjects and his own personal desires. (sighs) Hippolyta and other female warriors like her have a literary tradition and a reputation in the Renaissance Middle Ages of being examples of quote-unquote unwomanly conduct. So this audience in 1595 would have seen this marriage as the paragon of order subduing the womanly desire. Mm. Yeah. And it's funny to me that Theseus is painted in this light in this play because knowing more about Theseus as a Greek mythological character, which we'll Mm -hmm. talk about later in the series, It's just like, oh, okay, Shakespeare, liberties were taken. Mm -hmm. I think liberties were taken, but also by this time, the Greek myth of Theseus had become this other thing for- That Shakespeare was For Renaissance and early modern men. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but then uh, moving to the forest moves the play from the land, this land of order into a land of chaos and disorder. And we then see a reverse situation with Titania and Oberon, where Titania and Oberon are in this state of disorder where she is not subordinate to him. And over the course of the play, we learn that when they are in harmony, they will oversee these like chaste, ordained marriages, good mm. marriages. They have the mm-hmm. ability to bless them. Bless them, right. And in a way, they mirror the internal condition of the lovers through their own turmoil. So we're seeing you know, the disorder of the lovers through them. And then at the end of the play, they are also returned to the land of reason. So the lark that sings at the end of fairy time, fairy king attend mark, I do hear the morning lark, was a symbol of the ascent of the reasonable soul towards God and heaven. Oh, interesting. So it's like, we're going back to the time of reason, everybody. The world is returned to reason, and Mm -hmm. then reason is maintained through the marriage ritual at the end of the play. Mm. That said, we can talk a little bit more about what happens in the forest. Yeah, that's the, that's the more interesting part. <laughs> Some sexy things. Yes. 
a sexy time in the forest. Time. So I'm, I want to talk about how forms of intimacy and community that are non-heteronormative appear not just in Shakespeare, but elsewhere in early modern English literature. I'm going to be looking at them through the lens of queer theory. According to Melissa E. Sanchez in her article, Use Me But As Your Spaniel, Feminism, Queer Theory, and Early Modern Sexualities, queer theory says, let's, quote, recognize forms of intimacy and community in which perverse, shameful, and irrational feelings and desires have a place, unquote. So we know from previous episodes that early modern women resisted the submissive and heteronormative roles prescribed for them from those, you know, marriage manuals and those sermons. We know about, you know, women who wore men's clothing right. and went Mall out into, purse, right, yeah. like right. those existed. Purse, yeah. Yeah. We know women had careers. We know. We know that they have participated in many spheres that have, you know, today been watered down. Yeah. But Sanchez asked in her article, what about their desires for sex outside of monogamous and loving relationships? Depictions of women having desires for rough, anonymous, and promiscuous sex are seen elsewhere in early modern literature, and they were very popular in the early modern period. John Harrington, yes, that is the man who invented the flush toilet, who we've talked about before. Yeah. Oh, I love when he gets brought up. I know. It's I, a good time. I, it was my reading and I was like, wait, is that the same guy? Same man. Is this the same? Same man? He's got poop jokes and he's got sex. Yeah. Uh, so we last talked about him in... Place for the Court. Place for the Court and Twelfth Night. Right. Yes. He was banished from the court mm. for his translation of Orlando Furioso by Ludovico Ariosto. Elizabeth was so angered by the racy nature of the translations uh, that she told Harrington he couldn't return until he translated the entire poem. And that was his punishment because she believed he wouldn't be able to do it or that it would take forever. But he did. He completed the translation in 1591, and it is still read today. I love that. It's like that um, American Horror Story clip like with Emma Roberts where she's like, surprise, bitch, you thought you'd seen the last of me. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> it's exactly like that. He also noted that while readers of his translation, because he was kind of churning it out in episodes, condemned the racy passages, they were, quote, half offended that I have not made some directions that you might find out and read them immediately, unquote. So saying that, like, they may condemn them, but they're also clamoring for them and they get annoyed when I publish something that isn't racy. And what exactly does Orlando Furioso contain that Elizabeth objected to? Sodomy, zoophilia, promiscuity, gender fluidity, and cross-dressing. Then we also have a couple of scenarios in Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which you mentioned you also came across in your reading. Mm, yeah, I didn't do a whole lot of actually reading or getting like the, the book, but it was referenced as like influential. Yeah, it was brought up a lot as a major source for Shakespeare mm -hmm. when writing A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, Sanchez notes two episodes within The Fairy Queen that can be seen as non-monogamous, non-heteronormative sex. So scenario number one, Sir Guyon encounters two naked women who are wrestling slash play fighting um, in a body of water. So they're like dunking each other and pretend drowning each other. And he watches and kind of gets aroused. And while the dunking might be enjoyed by Guyon, it isn't being performed for his benefit, nor does it receive sexual meaning from his voyeurism. It's just these two women are engaging in this sort of sadomasochistic play of uh, dominating each other by dunking and trusting each other that they are not actually going to drown each other. Playfully dunking and all that. Mm -hmm. And then once the women notice him and his arousal, they increase their activities and also beckon him towards them. They simultaneously desire him and are amused by his arousal. Mm. And Sanchez notes that this is very similar to lesbian erotica that is aimed at men. Mm -hmm. Guyon goes on to resist the temptation and like move forward. Because he's a gentleman. Scenario number two, I think, is most similar to what we see in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And that is Helenor's rejection of her unloving and impotent husband, Malbecco, in favor of a group of satyrs. Mm, satyrs and asses and mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. that animal and, stuff. An animal Zoophilic fantasies weren't uncommon in early modern England. The first English statutes against bestiality were passed in 1533 and 1548, and the court records that we have indicate that it occurred with regularity. 
So people were brought before the court on accusations of bestiality a bit. Yeah, I got a little bit of that too. It shows up. Yeah. And um, Sanchez says, quote, unlike marriage or friendship, the cross-species eroticism pursues a pleasure that exists only in relation to the self, not as an instrument of generation or spiritual communion. A sexuality that does not justify itself through claims of love, commitment, or procreation, unquote. And the narrator of this passage describes Helenor's sexual activities in, quote, graphic and sympathetic detail, and the narrative repeatedly suggests that Helenor has good reason to prefer the jolly satyrs over the impotent Malbecco, unquote. Furthermore, she chooses communal over monogamous sex and prefers partners who are half-goat. Satyrs were also understood to be very potent and very well endowed. Helenor's partner, it's noted in the text, orgasms nine times in a single night. Wow. Yep. And what's interesting, though, is that Spencer also describes the satyr's sexual prowess in a way that equates sex with a religious act of spiritual devotion as well as one that defies societal norms. So he calls the uh, satyr's orgasms like a ringing of the bell that calls people to morning prayers. So simultaneously, it's like this religious experience, but also it's in the middle of the night. So it's happening during a time where that doesn't typically have like you don't go pray Pray, your morning prayers in the middle of the night and then malbecco the husband urges helenor to return to him and she just says no and stays with the satyrs wow (laughs) yeah what year was this books one through three were first published in 1590 and then it was republished in 1596 with all books one through six so very shortly before shakespeare's writing yeah yeah and then I know we're, we're going to come back to bestiality with Titania in a bit, but I want to talk about other examples of healthy female sexuality that we find in A Midsummer Night's Dream. So first things first, we have some homoeroticism between Helena and Hermia. Helena describes her relationship to Hermia in terms that equate to a sort of classical ideal of female friendship, free from desire and subordination, fancy-free But it also draws on the description of soulmates from Plato's Symposium in that they are two halves of the same whole. And they are very much one. Helena says the word one like seven times, identifying them as the same. That's a lot. And she also notes that their sides are one. And in the 16th century, the word sides was synonymous with loins. So their loins are are one. one. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a very homonormative dream of oneness. And these memories of oneness are actually complicated and not displaced by Helena's knowledge of Hermia's anger and temper. Because um, in this article, um, Sanchez quotes Adam Phillips saying, quote, no amount of redescription will alter the fact that if people can satisfy each other, they can frustrate each other, unquote. So just because Helena has those lines about how Hermia was a vixen and she has a temper, that doesn't mean that they also didn't have a potentially um, homoerotic nature to their relationship. Right. And then maybe that's why Helena knows that about Hermia. Right. And then also when they are read in the context of queer work, they are a representation of the triangulation of desire. So desiring someone else through another person. So triangulation of desire is also called mimetic desire. It involves a subject, the person desiring, an object, the person being desired, and a mediator, the person modeling desire between the two. And since these three points, when mapped to make a triangle, triangular desire. Through Lysander and Demetrius modeling desire for Helena, Hermia can, in a way, desire Helena through Lysander desiring Helena. Like, it's extra, like, yeah. Then we also see Demetrius trying to use sex as a weapon Mm -hmm. with Helena. He threatens to rape her. Yeah. But she calls his bluff and, quote, upsets clear distinctions between domination and submission, unquote, and the gender roles assumed in a heterosexual coupling. Mm. Helena invites Demetrius to use her as his spaniel. Shakespeare uses the figure of the spaniel also in Two Gentlemen of Verona to depict the masochistic element of male desire. In that play, the spaniel is also used with the idea of spurning the lover and Sanchez notes that spurn can be used to either mean to kick or trample or to urge and incite. 
So Helena could be inciting Demetrius uh, sexually. She could be saying that, like, use me, but as your spaniel, spurn me, strike me, neglect me, lose me. So while in context, it seems like spurn would likely be, you know, again, like a repeat of to kick or to strike, it could also mean urge me on and then strike me, neglect me, you know. Yeah, something more like masochistic in yeah. that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just that, like, no matter how badly he treats her, it just makes her want him more. Yeah. And then her pursuit of an unresponsive object of desire is very similar to a Petrarchan male lover. Mm. We saw Orsino in Twelfth Night as a Petrarchan lover. Yeah, she, quote, co-ops the male role of lover and the male prerogative of refusing to take no for an answer, unquote, from the Petrarchan tradition. Also, and I think we're going to get back to bestiality in a minute with Titania, but Helena also wishes, quote, to be used as you use your dog, unquote. And use can mean treat, treat me like you do your dog, as well as have intercourse with. And early modern writers uh, saw bestiality as a form of sodomy, and that sodomy was defined then as sexual activity that's not for the intent or possibility of procreation. Yeah. So Helena may also enjoy um, anal play in this, to be used as you use your dog. Because that's... Have sex with me in the way that does not produce a child. Wow. Yeah. And we know already that he made love to her, but he also says that, you know, she impeaches her modesty too much and that people will say she's not a virgin if she's caught in the woods with a man, right, as he's trying to threaten to do her mischief. Right. So in this way, Sanchez is saying with that and with with the bestiality language, you know, maybe Helena enjoys anal play. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yep. And we're going to talk about Titania next. Mm, mm-hmm. Speaking speaking of bestiality. Speaking of bestiality. How many, I didn't expect, to, just to say, I did not expect uh, to say those words. <laughs> I should have, but I didn't. On a Shakespeare podcast? When I started a Shakespeare podcast, things I should have been prepared for. Just a couple things I want to talk about uh, really briefly to remember in the context of this conversation. Titania's world is a very feminine world. Mm-hmm. Her bower is filled with flowers, but also her attendants are named after ingredients that would be common in household cures of the period, associating her with the housewives. Mm. And they do work that would have been sort of more women's work. They you know, make coats and they gather food and things like that. And then it's also nearby where Philomel, who is the nightingale, Philomel is invited to come join them in their songs. The Nightingale is another woman in mythology. Um, She is raped by her brother-in-law and gets revenge. And then the gods turn her and her sister into birds so that they can escape. Uh, That's a very shortened version of that. So it's also a safe place for women who have been harmed by men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about the mythology of this play as it relates to Greek mythology in another episode. In a later episode, yeah. But I think it's worthwhile to note here that Titania's name and character are drawn from a literary tradition that traces back to a specific fertility goddess. Um, And this can be seen in the text as she has power over the seasons. Um, But because of the marital marital discord, she hasn't been able to do her job and the seasons are now disordered as well. Which we'll also talk about that later. And that she joins her husband in part of the blessing of the marriage houses that it will bear children, right? So I think those are just things to like keep in mind as we also talk mm-hmm. about what she gets up to in the course of this play. Yeah. Yeah, that's all a great way to frame Titania and her environment and what her life is like before Oberon and Puck place the flower and make her mm-hmm. fall in love with an ass. Right. So I read Bestial Buggery in A Midsummer Night's Dream by Bruce Thomas Forer. And Borer writes about how Titania's animal passion for bottom tests the bounds of Elizabethan theatrical decorum. Like you said, Elise, people were talking about bestiality and sodomy in that degree. Literature, in theater, Mm -hmm. and Oberon's plot to drug Titania uh, enforces this traditional marital order and decency by indulging in indecency, Mm -hmm. is what Borer is arguing. The contradiction appears elsewhere as a symbolic coupling of human erotic desire to animal objects. 
So I want to start by first like analyzing the text itself and then getting into some of the history and some of the, you know, mm-hmm. what was going on in early modern England. Yeah. So Oberon expresses a sense of pleasure in his wife's degradation. When Puck says, quote, Titania waked and straightway loved an ass, Oberon responds, quote, this falls out better than I could devise. Mm-hmm. So we see Oberon enjoying this ridicule. Yeah, which is fantastic because he devises a lot of animals. He's like, the next thing she espies, like, ounce or boar or meddling monkey, busy ape. Like, he imagines a lot of animals. He does not come up with mm-hmm. an ass. And then of all the animals. Yeah. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about the importance of the ass in the theatrical tradition mm-hmm. or the literary tradition as well. Oberon ridicules the spectacle of Titania sleeping in Bottom's arms as a, quote, sweet sight, unquote. And this ridicule has yielded success, quote, when I had at my pleasure taunted her, and she in mild terms begged my patience, I then did ask of her a changeling child, which she straight gave me, unquote. Mm-hmm. He gets what he wants in the end because of this degradation. And Borer argues that some language expresses Oberon's regret for this degradation of Titania, but other language contradicts this sentiment, and Oberon expresses pleasure at Titania as a form of sport and theater. Mm -hmm. Now, outside of this play, this rhetoric legitimates fantasies of male authority. Mm -hmm. So, number one, Titania is reduced to her husband's power. Number two, she's also exposed to an audience. So it's this communal experience. And number three, Titania is placed in a sexual bondage to a donkey. And all these events are represented as the inevitable consequence of her own misconduct. And you talked about this a little bit. This is a result of her not behaving as she should with her husband. Yeah. Her not subduing to her husband. Yeah. Yeah. Her not being subservient to her husband. Yeah. Yeah. And the return to order. Titania being subservient to her husband is brought about through bestiality. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mechanisms of the fairy subplot force human nature to combine with animal nature and vice versa. So Bottom is both man and animal, but is also referred to as an ass both before and after transformation. And the play suggests that social arrangements like marriage, patriarchy, monarchy, are necessary and exist because human nature is in constant danger of corruption from the bestial and or female other, and it must be constantly monitored. Right, yeah. that's That kind of came up in my reading of that, like, that's where, like, Hippolyta is, like, this symbol of, like, this woman who's, like, out of control desires. Mm-hmm. And Theseus has won her. Yes. The king of reason has, like, oh, yeah. Reason is won over all of the women. And that's what men do. That is what men do. And Puck says, well, you know this because you just played Puck, quote, Jack shall have Jill, not shall go ill, the man shall have his mare again, and all shall be well, unquote. This quote suggests that while a woman is a man's fit sexual companion, it can also be read that a mare is a man's fit sexual companion. Oh. And Puck's language plays off this longstanding identification of sexually active women with mares. Mm-hmm. So... Mares were described in medieval bestiaries as, quote, the most lustful of female animals, unquote. Mm-hmm. So this mare appears in early texts such as Ancrene Rewel. I believe that's Old English. But it was an anonymous monastic rule for female anchoresses written in the early 13th century. And it was a metaphorical placeholder mm-hmm. for the wanton woman. So literally the man is going to have his wanton woman again. Mm-hmm. Or his horse. Either one. They're one and the same. They're one and the same. Mm-hmm. And this text, this monastic text, counsels unchaste women to unburden themselves to their confessors by exclaiming, quote, Sir God's mercy, I am a foul stud mare, a stinking whore, unquote. Wow. <laughs> so these are some of the more, those like conservative texts that like Shakespeare was drawing on for like what court marriage in this is, is that like the domination and subordination of men and reason over women and their lust yeah like multiple times in my reading i was like man this play is so much more sexist when you really peel back when these layers. when you have this layer on it yeah yeah so these late medieval texts represent this woman as quote-unquote mare language 
And Renaissance records reveal that mares are the most commonly abused animals in cases of bestial buggery. Borer suggests that once women have been made a mare by metaphor, mares began to assume the qualities and status of women as well. So the acts of bestiality that we get in the court records, they're largely being done to female horses. Right. And female horses are this placeholder for, for, for women. women. Yeah. So that's, that's what's going on in the early modern era. But Shakespeare reverses this gender troping through Bottom's metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. And Oberon turns the man into the beast and keeps his wife in her human form. Bottom remains largely the same. He's got a donkey's head, but he's still a man. He craves head scratches, oats, and service, but remains faithful to his human character. He doesn't even know he's a donkey or has a donkey's head. Yeah, he doesn't even seem to know consciously that he's had a transformation. He seems to be in, in denial. The language in his speech at the end is totally ambiguous of whether he thought he was, he thought he had, is about an ass's head or about the experience of being loved by, by this a queen. fairy queen. Yeah. And being waited on hand and foot by attendants for the first time in his life. Yeah. Yeah. But Titania, on the other hand, is impeached by the exchange. She cannot distinguish between the human and the animal. So the transformation happens more to her than to Bottom because she is transformed into being aroused by and in love with him. Mm -hmm. So turning a woman into an animal degrades the woman, generally like the mare metaphor, that mare. Mm -hmm. But then turning a man into an animal also degrades the woman. Both of these transformations are to degrade the women. woman in the relationship. Yeah. And Renaissance bestiality texts concern themselves with exploring human boundaries that interfere with fundamental distinctions between human nature and animal nature. Characterizations exist elsewhere in Midsummer. Hermia refers to Demetrius as a serpent. Hermia dreams Lysander smiles at her, getting her heart eaten by the serpent Demetrius. Helena is referred to as a dog in her relationship with Demetrius, which you talked about. And this metaphor of man and mare appears in the union of Hippolyta and Theseus. The name Hippolyta, the Greek root of hippos, is horse. Oh. Mm -hmm. They also have some very interesting language about their hunting dogs. Yeah. I was just going to get to oh, that. okay. <laughs> Hippolyta mentions Hercules and Cadmus's hunting dogs, and then Theseus responds with an aggressively phallic description of his hunting dogs. Yeah. So the animals are used uh, as a sexual metaphor in this relationship between Hippolyta and Theseus. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have anything else to say about that because you noticed that. Yeah, it's like they are having a um, dog measuring contest mm -hmm. in that moment. Between, By like, dog, we mean dick. dick. <laughs> and yeah, and it's again another moment of him asserting his dominance over this otherwise, you know, indomitable woman right she's dominated like land like gold like horses yeah and going back to courtship and marriage borer also argues that midsummer constructs marital unions as analogs to the sexual conjunction of humans and animals so he sums up this play as a protestant marriage manual constructed out of animal pornography which yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, when you have a court of noble people who, especially like the men are going to be very subscribed to the marriage manuals of the time. And you're like also celebrating a marriage. So you want to be very pro-marriage. But then you also have this group of people who are very into this like relatively new poem by Spencer that's like really racy. And so why not put in a make it really body and make it really a sexy time for this wedding? Yeah, yeah, these worlds collide. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of all of this, Borer has collected applicable court records that confirm the disciplinary rigor with which animal sodomites were handled. Trials and punishments varied greatly from incident to incident, and from his analysis, cases of bestiality in law are less about the crime itself, because there's no human plaintiff, and more about the rhetoric surrounding bestiality. In 1519, the ecclesiastical court presiding over Tetchwick, Buckinghamshire, reports that Richard Maine, a water carrier, quote, joined himself carnally with a mare, and a certain Elizabeth Parsons noticed it and reported it, unquote. But no penalty was mentioned. Mm. In 1525, William Franklin appeared in a Brisley Parish court due to a charge, quote, having had sexual intercourse with an animal, 
and had to go to procession publicly and offer a penny candle as penance, unquote. So there's no consistent punishment, it appears, in this time period. Mm -hmm. One thing that Borer notes is that both of these records do not keep with Leviticus, which is, if a man or woman lies with a beast, they must be put to death. So that punishment wasn't being carried out. And Thomas Beard, a Puritan moralist and writer, we cannot talk about bestiality without bringing up the Puritan moralists. <laughs> I'm sure exactly <laughs> how they want to be brought up. Mm-hmm. But Thomas Beard, this moralist and writer, uh, in his pamphlet, I think it was, Theater of God's Judgment from 1597, wrote, quote, The law of God forbiddeth to lie with a beast and denounceth death against them that commit this foul sin. For there have been such monsters in the world at some times, unquote. Beard is utilizing the moral economy of monsters. And Puck says, quote, my mistress with the monster is in love, mm. unquote. But generally, poets, satirists, and moralists in Shakespeare's time wrote of bestiality as a piece of voyeurism to represent the stabilizing influence of domestic order and moral indignation, like Oberon doing the wrong thing for the quote-unquote right reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that faces everything. <laughs> Just a little bit. Uh. A little. Uh. The Puritans are like, yeah, we should punish this, but we should punish it like the Bible says. Come on. Come on, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, if they had their way, though, they would punish everyone like the Bible. Like the Bible says, yeah. Yeah. So to conclude this bit of reading I did, some scholars argue, is this play conservative Shakespeare or radical Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. And Borer argues that Midsummer is neither. Instead, Midsummer toys with slippages that ground the system of being of which he is a part. And these slippages are not for specifically disruptive or subversive purposes. They're not conservative nor radical. But rather, toying with these slippages allows the system to emerge or proceed. And there's this conservative to radical and back again. So as audience members, we are denied certainty. Hmm. Yeah. So what I understand is like he's saying that this play is not reinforcing either the Christian moralist marriage manual version of marriage, nor is it, you know, completely in the opposite direction of like, let's have just the the most liberated sexuality. Mm-hmm. We can imagine in early modern England, it's playing with where's the line here yeah going a little bit farther and then bringing it back and then going a little farther it's crossing a line a little to like scandalize early modern audiences and crossing the line a little bit in the other direction and then kind of landing nowhere in the middle yeah which is not a very exciting place as a theater maker to place this play you know Mm -hmm. yeah to be like it's mid yeah but also, having done Twelfth Night, that's not quite as, like, trans-exciting as we would have wanted or, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in a way, this one is like, there's more sex in here than you expect, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think is what this reading should... Right. Like, I feel like I see this play done a lot in a very, like, just plain love way. Like, it's just mm. without any sort of sexual desire in it. And I want to acknowledge that, like... There are some places and where, you know, maybe you can't imbue that in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe you can't imbue sexual desire. Maybe there are certain productions that just can't and shouldn't. But this play has a lot more of it in there than, and I think that theater makers can play a lot more with, and this is something that really started to interest me working on the play again after like 10 years of not working on this play, going into like what what is the effect of the love and idleness? Because that is the the catalyst that causes all of the like the extreme disorder, that slippage. So what do, what does desire look like magnified by that? And like how much does everybody get? How much does each character like what is the dosage on each character? And does it have different effects based on the dosage? And I think, too, I'm really interested in the idea of Titania as a fertility goddess and what that brings to that character instead of just, like, a fairy queen. We'll talk about that another time, though. And also what that means for, like, what her relations with Bottom 
look like and are. Yeah, yeah. And especially like this idea that we are voyeurs in this degradation of Titania is something else. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of comedy in this play. It's a comedy. Very good, Courtney. You're great at definitions. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen every single Midsummer, and I don't know if I've ever really seen like a big bucket of Midsummer to really be able to adequately compare. But I've seen a lot of like, most of the fun is being poked at Bottom and Titania is played very genuinely when she's in love with Bottom. And I wonder, because of this degradation, mm -hmm. you know, at Titania's expense, what would that look like on... Mm -hmm. and And I don't actually know if that's even a really good idea because I don't want to degrade Titania, but I wonder yeah. what that would do but with like, like... At the same time, like to talk about it through queer theory, like yes. the degradation that's like anti-feminist, right? Right. But when we also talk about degradation in a sexual connotation there are people who enjoy being degraded and take great pleasure in it and so what if this is still pleasurable for her and even though like sure you know the audience that shakespeare was uh who was seeing this performed for the first time they might have enjoyed just watching a woman be humiliated and set right quote unquote that's in there, but we, but like theater makers can choose whether or not it's enjoyable for her. Right. And if you have artists that actually understand the wealth of sexuality and sexual preferences and sexual activity, then perhaps some of these things that are humiliating for the female characters in particular can be elevated yeah. or removed from shame. Yeah. And that's something that like my article with my Melissa e. Sanchez talked about was this idea that like women can and do enjoy being subjugated in a sexual connotation and that doesn't make them less feminist it doesn't also mean that if it's happening in the context of a non-heteronormative relationship that they desire a heteronormative relationship but to be like she can't be enjoying this at all or like we don't want to watch it it's also like well that's well some people enjoy that so does it make it easier to stomach today if Titania is enjoying the degradation and it's not just Oberon being a sadist to a um, unwilling partner. What if it's part of some established play? Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that the love and idleness tells you who to love when you look at them, but doesn't tell you how you want them to love you or how you want to love. Right. So in that realm... That could be play that Titania already engages in or wants or enjoys. And it just so happens to be with Bottom. I mean, there's always the question of consent mm -hmm. in this play, given the love and idleness. You can't escape that. Right. But perhaps it's maybe she's not humiliated. In a way she doesn't want to be. In a way she doesn't want to be. I think that's a really good point that the love and idleness, it kind of like magnifies. Mm -hmm. Like we see Lysander being a romantic dope and then he's like a romantic dope turned up to 11 yes and everything he was giving to hermia is just redoubled yeah doubled. And doubled and doubled towards helena and so what if titania is not humiliated by her interactions with bottom except for in a way she wants to be yes yeah and then you have just a few final things to talk about specifically bottom yeah and the concept of the ass it's a very sexy thing the ass i'm a fan Butts are great. <laughs> <laughs> and by ass, you mean the motif of the traditional ass, the donkey in literature, oh, okay. art, and theater. Mm -hmm. I also read the ass motif in the Comedy of Errors and A Midsummer Night's Dream. I skipped Comedy of Errors and just focused on Midsummer. Uh, we'll get back to Comedy of Errors maybe. But this is by Deborah Baker Wyrick. So the term ass today carries the primary significance of an ignorant fellow, a perverse fool, or a conceited dolt, and is used for audience laughter. And that's how we understand it. But let's explore the literary history of ass. There are three different types of asses that we see in literature and theater. There's the admirable ass, the foolish ass, and also the licentious ass. The first one I want to talk about is the admirable ass often called the biblical ass. Biblical asses are generally harmless. One story of the admirable ass tradition from the Bible is the story of Balaam's ass. 
he was granted the sight of the angel of the Lord, which leads to the image of this animal as a type of Christ. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Plutarch and Tacitus also asserted in some of their writing that Jews adored the ass because it discovered springs of water in the desert during the Exodus. Mm -hmm. The biblical ass merged into a newly formed admirable slash foolish ass hybrid by the medieval and Renaissance era. Specifically in the Renaissance, the ass was a symbol of stupidity as well as religious allegory, turning the ass into an alternative tradition called the Asinus Portens Mysteria, or a donkey that carries mysteries. And this tradition was used in Middle Age and Renaissance iconography. One example is Gregory Whitney's Non Tibi Sed Religioni, or Not for You, But for Religion, that depicts an ass carrying a goddess on his back and displaying vanity because the ass thinks the crowd is lauding it rather than Isis, the goddess. And here the ass is religious, but also foolish. Uh, the ass continued to shift away from the admirable ass into the second type of ass, that is foolish ass. There was a medieval parodic feast called the Ass's Feast that connected the Feast of Fools, and this Ass's Feast had an ass led through the church, like a physical ass led through the church. It featured an ass's liturgy being sung, and there was a merry alcoholic sacrament celebrated. Aesop's Fables also demonstrates the stupidity of asses and Ovid's ass lore, which I think that's funny, ass lore. Uh, but <laughs> Ovid's ass lore seems to be particularly inspiring to Shakespeare. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, Ovid recounts Apollo's gift of ass's ears to the tone-deaf Midas, who had the audacity to prefer the satyr Pan's pipings to Apollo's. Because of this, Ovid's Midas experiences transformation, much like Bottom. And into the 16th century, the ass was still an allegory of stupidity and was connected with the fool proper. Oh. So ass's ears wagged as a conventionalized feature of the fool's head. Chaloner's 1549 translation of Morier Enconium calls dumb men who, quote, walk like asses in lion skin, may he not aptly call them philosophers, unquote, which I thought was a sick 16th century burn, a philosopher. Yeah, sick 16th century pun. And also, pronunciation allowed the word ass to take on a coarser association of asses, women, and posterior parts of the body. Now, this provides us with our third type of ass, the licentious ass. So ass served as a pun with arse, then coupled with a similar play upon the word tail, could refer directly to the genitals as well as the rump. These associations of ass and tail manifested themselves in medieval punishments for sex workers. In France, sex workers were sentenced to ride naked upon asses or donkeys, head to tail. And this punishment could be due to a tradition of the ass as a phallic animal. And lastly, our licentious ass also makes an appearance in the Roman writer Apuleius's body story, The Golden Ass which Shakespeare was definitely influenced by. The story's protagonist, Lucius, gets transformed into a donkey, and bestiality is added to his list of sexual encounters. So, again, you have number one, the admirable ass, number two, the foolish ass, and number three, the licentious ass. And Wyrick writes that Bottom embodies all three of these asses. I was just about to say, I was like, so Bottom checks at least two boxes. Mm-hmm. According to Wyrick, Bottom, the licentious ass, is a comedy of the grotesque. Mm -hmm. He's most recognizable in Opulus's The Golden Ass as he is given a donkey's head through supernatural transformation. On an Elizabethan stage, Bottom would have appeared as a foolish ass. Wyrick believes Bottom is most intended to represent the foolish ass tradition. It's important to note that he's not a hybrid monster. If Shakespeare wanted a monster, mm -hmm. he could have written Theseus's Minotaur. If he was most intended to be licentious, he mm -hmm. would have been an ape or a goat, since apparently goats and apes are licentious animals. But he's also an admirable ass. Bottom's dream soliloquy links him to the admirable ass, a divinely inspired oracle. He says, quote, The eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen. Man's hand is not able mm -hmm. to taste, his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. Unquote. And with Bottom's most rare vision, 
he becomes Asinus Portens Mysteria, or a donkey that carries mysteries. Oh. So, in conclusion, Bottom is a type of every man for the audience. A licentious ass who parodies man's half-hidden fascination with the sexual substratum of love, a foolish ass who reflects man's folly, and an admirable ass who incorporates man's vatic mysteries of divine revelation and poetic inspiration. Wow. Mm-hmm. What a nice note, I think, to wrap up our conversation about the sex and sexuality in this very horny play that's often called Shakespeare's Ass Play. <laughs> Is a, ni- a nice note about Bottom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it also rounds him out. He's a nice, well-rounded a nice, ass. Well-rounded ass. What a peach. <laughs> um. <laughs> we can't come back from that. So no. I think we can just say thank you for listening. Our kind listeners, we can no other answer make but thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patron, Claire Sharp. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare, any, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits... Here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Richard II, Act 2, Scene 2, said by Queen. So, Green, thou art the midwife of my woe, and Bolingbroke my sorrow's dismal heir.